Hello and welcome to this edition of UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva, a weekly review of international events making the headlines at the United Nations. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Daniel Johnson, and in today's show, we'll be catching up on a heart-wrenching plea from the head of the UN's World Food Programme as the agency formally accepted its Nobel Peace Prize. A fresh warning over looming famine in war-torn Yemen and deep concern over gender-based violence and impunity in Afghanistan. That's all in the news bulletin coming up. But first, how do you keep the cameras rolling as a member of one of the biggest TV broadcast organisations in the world in the middle of a global health crisis? That's been the challenge for Liz Corbyn, head of news at the European Broadcasting Union, a public service provider whose members' programmes reach more than a billion people around the world. I spoke to her earlier this week, and as we'll hear, she explains how it became necessary to push back against efforts to politicise the pandemic, while also ensuring that life-or-death information reached all those looking for it. I started by asking her what she found most challenging. You asked what's been the hardest thing. I mean, producing news content, broadcasting, when you're no longer going into that factory of news every day, has been one of the biggest challenges. But there have been some things that have been much more complex than the, the physical, how do you do the news. In terms of public service information, how do we define what that is? And one of the examples in the report that we've just published is about the often daily press conferences that you had in countries where governments would be giving really crucial public health advice. And huge numbers of viewers tuned into those press conferences every day in in their millions. But then came a point where the government realised, the governments, a lot of them realised, aha, we have this platform where we can say what we like and millions of people are watching and listening and streaming online. Traditional press conferences, politicians standing at the front, a room full of journalists who can ask questions and they can ask whatever questions they like. One of the things we saw was that when it all went online was that the governments would choose who got to ask the questions. They might pre-select questions in advance. They would only answer the questions they wanted to. There was limited opportunity for follow-up. That normal scrutiny that is part of the fabric of daily political journalism was distorted. And amongst our members, we had the opportunity to discuss that with editors-in-chief, which was the most informative and memorable thing for me this year, how to tell the truth, how to get to the truth in the middle of a pandemic. It's obviously a very difficult decision on where you draw the line on giving politicians a platform to speak because your broadcasters need support from governments to continue functioning. There's been a drop in advertising revenue. That's hit the commercial broadcasters a lot. But at the same time, the whole world of broadcasting has been put under huge pressure. So how do you continue to justify your position? How do you maintain that link with the public? Have you had to produce new products? Have you had to be more immediate in your response? I mean, what we saw this year was an enormous spike in audience figures in all of our members. Just take evening news bulletins as one example. Two and a half times the average audience turning on and watching the evening news bulletins to find out what was the latest. The public really wanted information that they could trust. They needed it. This was a life or death situation. This wasn't a matter of political discussion. And what they wanted was independent and impartial 
information and they came to us in droves and they stayed and the young audiences they came for for television news bulletins which was extraordinary but they also started finding us on all the platforms where they feel much more comfortable and that acceleration of the digitization of news the traditional media showed that it could turn on a sixpence and could create new products and be in the places where the audience needed us. Just one question, a bit selfishly really, but here at the United Nations, we often cover these set piece press conferences from UN agencies. Is it something that people still want to see? Yeah, I think there is a place for yeah boring press conferences. But then what's crucially important is to distill that information. A lot of the information around COVID and lockdowns and all the restrictions was and continues to be really confusing. And it is the duty of the media to take that information and do the best it can to make it as consumable and clear as possible. How hard has it been for the union and its members at a time when public service support is being squeezed? Is it even possible for a public service broadcaster to function without public funding? Um, No. I mean, it's absolutely crucial that the funding and support for public service journalism continues and is as strong as possible. What makes for quality journalism is knowing that you're secure in your funding, that your impartiality and independence is secure. All of those things are crucial to enable us to do our jobs properly. But I think what 2020 showed us, even the most aggressive politicians who would previously have been throwing mud at their public service news organisations weren't. They needed them. Everybody knew that this year that public service media was absolutely crucial to the safe functioning of society. And to protect the media and protect public service media in particular is crucial to that functioning of society, to democracy, to freedom, and in this case, to public health. Thank you, Liz. You've explained my last question, which was, you know, what is it that's so unique about your union, your membership? that means that you should continue to justify your position in a post-COVID world. I get the sense that you will be providing the same traditional news bulletins, which are getting a big pickup among the public, but that you're also going to be providing something new, but hopefully not with less. Yeah, I mean, we all need to be more efficient and we need to do what we can to be the most value for money that we can be, given that a lot of our funding, in some cases, all of the funding comes from the public. And we really understand the responsibility that we have in that regard. But security of that funding is crucial to be able to develop and grow. You mentioned there the innovation that we're making. The shift towards digital has not slowed down at all this year. We have a phrase in journalism that when you have a disaster or something terrible that happens, as everybody else is running away, it's the journalists that are running into it. Well, in this case, the rest of the industry was closing down. We were producing more output. We were introducing new programs. We were taking our content onto new platforms. And we were launching TikTok accounts. We were launching Instagram accounts. We were introducing audience engagement throughout our broadcast. It was a year for us of innovation. Yes, in some ways, forced innovation, but with really fantastic results. And that's what we need to learn from. What worked? How are we going to continue to engage more with our audiences in future? Because that's our remit and it's hugely important. 
And now for the headlines. The UN World Food Programme, WFP, formally accepted its Nobel Peace Prize on Thursday with a moving acceptance speech from the head of the UN agency, who appealed for help for 270 million people marching towards starvation. Please don't ask us to choose who lives and who dies, said David Beasley, WFP Executive Director, warning that famine is at humanity's doorstep for millions and millions of people. I don't go to bed at night thinking about the children we saved. I go to bed weeping over the children we could not save. And when we don't have enough money, nor the access we need, we have to decide which children eat and which children do not eat, which children live, which children die. How would you like that job? The agency helps to feed 100 million people, 30 million of whom rely 100% on WFP for their survival, Mr Beasley said. In total, however, 690 million people go to bed hungry every night, the WFP chief continued, despite massive strides in eliminating extreme poverty and the fact that there is $400 trillion of wealth in the world today. In a related story in Yemen, a fresh alert on Friday that time is running out to avoid famine in the country. Out of 2 million children who need treatment for acute malnutrition, 360,000 are at risk of dying if they do not receive medical care, said World Food Programme spokesperson Thompson Ferry. We are running out of time. Approximately 16 million people cannot put food on their tables. This is a disaster. This is a ticking time bomb and the world needs to act and to act now. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, also warned that hundreds of thousands of internally displaced people also face life-threatening food insecurity. They have been victims of ceaseless violence and the COVID-19 pandemic, which have left them without work to support themselves, spokesperson Babar Balok told journalists in Geneva. He cited a new UN food security survey in Yemen, which showed that the risk of famine-like conditions was increasing. Data indicated that the biggest dangers of people going hungry were in areas of conflict which are home to half of Yemen's displaced population of 4 million. Finally, to Afghanistan, where the justice system has failed female victims of violence and sex crimes, UN Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet has said, highlighting a significant number of victims who've committed suicide out of an apparent lack of faith in the courts, Ms Bachelet said that it was heartbreaking and appalling that girls and women victims of attacks were ending their lives, sometimes by self-immolation. Her comments accompanied a report published on Monday by her office and the UN mission in Afghanistan, UNAMA. It examined 303 reports of crimes between September 2018 and February 2020. It found that only half of them ended up in court. And in 40 cases, victims of violence resorted to self-immolation or committed suicide, suggesting that they did not have faith in the justice system. Although Ms Bachelet acknowledged the efforts made by the Afghan authorities to ensure that the justice system was fair, she said that these were clearly not enough. The headlines there. And before that, Liz Corbyn from the European Broadcasting Union, EBU, with all sorts of insights into the difficulties of getting life or death news out of people everywhere in the age of Covid. Now I'm going to turn to our guests, Solange Bejartege Cortes and Alpha Diallo from the Information Service at UN Geneva. Solange, with your Latin American roots, did what Liz was saying there strike a chord with what you've been hearing and writing about this year in terms of press freedom? And I'm thinking particularly here about the Mexican journalist uh, who you wrote about, Alejandra Creel, who found that COVID-19 had been used to mask domestic abuse. And she won the prestigious Breach Valdez Prize for Journalism and Human Rights for her investigative work, didn't she, Solange? 
Yes. When she said, the question is how to tell the truth in the middle of the pandemic. And this brings me echo on what Alejandra said also, going even farther, when she said the truth must be told about both the virus and other darker issues. And in this context, darker issues means violence to women, childs and journalists before and during the pandemic. Because today, being a journalist can cost your life, but being a woman can cost you your life and being a child can cost you your life. Thank you, Solange. Yes, really tough time to be an investigative reporter. Listeners, if you want to follow up on Solange's story and read it, you can do so in English, French and Spanish, I believe, on the UN website, un.org forward slash coronavirus forward slash COVID-19. And you can see Solange's story in Stories from the Field. And Alpha, among your reporting duties in Geneva, you follow the Human Rights Council. It meets in Geneva in three regular sessions a year and also in special sessions. So Alpha, how is this body assessing the impact of COVID-19 on the daily work of journalists? Thank you, Don. I want to talk about some of the work that is being done by UN Special Rapporteur for Opinion Expression, David Kay, who has highlighted report on growing intimidation of journalists reporting on COVID-19 and other form of repression of major workers during the pandemic. According to Mr. K, some government have used the COVID-19 pandemic to repress expression in violation of their obligation under human rights law. Then, in general, hundreds of journalists around the world trying to cover protests have been harassed, beaten, intimidated, arrested, put under surveillance, and their equipment damaged. And the French NGO Reporters Without Borders has documented attacks against at least 125 journalists in 30 countries, including expulsion, arrest, police violence, withdrawing of press passes, demand of public apologies, and seizing electronic device. Between 2010 and 2019, nearly 900 journalists were killed in the line of duty, according to UNESCO data, crime that mainly go unpunished. Thanks, Alpha. That message of impunity, lack of justice for victims and their families is something that High Commissioner for Human Rights Michelle Bachelet has spoken about a lot since she took up her post in 2018. Not least this week at a press conference in Geneva where she was pretty clear about the many threats to freedom of speech at the moment. Absolutely. Amid the first wave, Michel Bachelet sounded alarms about some restrictive action imposed by several states against the independent media, as well as the arrest and intimidation of journalists, saying that the free flow information was vital in fighting COVID-19. To get back to the question of the press conference, Mrs. Bachelet explained to Geneva Press Corp how the pandemic is being used by some state as an excuse to clamp down on press freedom. Rights to free expression, to assembly, and to participate in public life have been battered during the pandemic, not because of warranted restrictions or movement to constrain the spread of COVID, but by the actions of some governments taking advantage of the situation to shut down political dissent and criticism, including by arresting civil society actors and journalists. Now, Alpha, you're from Senegal. Can you speak more widely about the dangers faced by journalists on the African continent? 
Yeah, Don, this climate of fear affects almost many parts of the world. But in Africa, you were upset by the death of a young Nigerian journalist. His name is Precious Owalabi, who was shot dead while covering a demonstration that gave rise to clashes between protesters and police in July 2019 for channel television in Nigeria. According to the Nigerian uh, Union of Journalists, no one has been arrested for this murder. Then, in conclusion, let me quote the UNESCO Director General at the World Press Freedom Conference, Audrey Azule, pointed out that yet journalists continue to be targeted and attacked. In recent years, threats against them have grown because they disturb, because they tell the truth, or, to put it simply, because they do their job. Thank you, Alpha, and thank you, Solange, for this insight. It's a bleak picture sometimes. It's something that the UN Human Rights Council talks about a lot through its independent experts, like David Kay, you mentioned, Alpha, but also through the committees which check how member states respect key international accords, like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. These are living documents, these conventions, not just museum pieces, and I know that because I did an interview with Christoph Heinz earlier this year. He's a law professor and human rights rock star basically, and he played a key role in drafting new legal advice to countries on people's right to peaceful assembly, which was adopted by the UN's Human Rights Committee in Geneva in July. So with that, I think that brings to an end our second show. Thank you, Solange Bertegui-Cortez and Alpha Diallo for your company today. It's great to hear your input, albeit remotely, as we have to do at the moment, but hopefully not for too much longer. And thank you, listeners, for your company. As ever, we would love to hear from you, and you can get in touch via your preferred social media platform just search for UN Geneva my name is Daniel Johnson and you've been listening to UN catch-up Dateline Geneva until next time mm-hmm.